Hola, mi nombre es Napoleón Griffin. Estás escuchando a Steady State Podcast. Welcome to Steady State Podcast, your rowing fix where the water's always flat, the catches are clean, and you can always hear the coxswain. We're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates the expansive array of rowers, coaches, and coxswains in a podcast designed to savor real life experience from launch to cock seat at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. We're really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make the people, the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. So when a recent podcast guest, Tracy Falkenthal, suggested we talk to Napoleon Griffin, we chased the lead. A decorated middle-distance track runner who learned to skull as an adult, Napoleon beat male breast cancer and today strives to get as much out of life as possible. He also survived Hurricanes Irma and Maria, which devastated Puerto Rico in 2017, causing long-lasting power outages and leaving residents without access to clean water. Looking for stability in and out of the boat, Napoleon relocated to Texas, where he now splits his time between Austin and Dallas. I'm doing wonderful. I'm so glad to speak with you all and meet you. We first ask our guests... How is your rowing week going? Going very well. Actually, I just got off of the water this morning. I'm actually going back to the water a little later. Um, I typically train probably twice a day, uh, six days a week, um, if not more sessions. So at least twice in the water, at least one erg, or uh, twice in the water in the gym. So I put in a lot of time on the water or on the erg. And what, what were you rowing this morning? Were you on uh, eight or single, single or single? Single. single. I only skull, no sweep. Wow. Have, you, have you ever swept or you got into sculling and that was it? I, I, I started, well, how it started with my entire rowing career, as you could say, the only option was sculling. And so when I did move to Boston, I did get some experience in sweeping. I've actually been out in the pair with my, my double skulls partner, because he is a sweep rower. And we went out in a pair, we did some snake drills. And before long, we rode 10,000 meters in the pair. But mm-hmm. I don't like the instability of it. Mm-hmm. I don't like sweep because you can't train on your own when you want to in sweep. Whereas in sculling, I can jump out on a single whenever I want. I don't have to coordinate with other people in order to be able to practice. And if one person has a limited amount of time on the water, that limits my time on the water. Right. So when I can skull, I can work on drills. I can plan it and be out there as long as I want because I have such serenity when I'm out there and I use sculling as a way to get away from uh, stresses and um, things that may be bothersome to me, no matter what it is. I just use that as my way to get away from it all. Now, it so hurts when you're doing crazy workouts. But. It's a lot. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so your so you're two-a-days, is that because you have some goal in mind for this season that you're prepping for? I, I do. Well, how it started is I was initially a track athlete. That's what I started, and my mother said my first race was when I was 18 months old because I just could not control myself when I would see a long straightaway. I just had to run. And so she said, okay, I know what to do with this one. So she put me in the baby Olympics and I ran and ran well and I won. 
And I continued on through age group track, the age of four, on through middle school, high school, and even ran collegiately. And my college track coach really instilled in me mileage and base, mileage and base. I was an 800 meter runner. So the 800 and 1500, that was my, those were my specialty events, but especially the 800. Well, you have to have a lot of strength, but also good, a, a good amount of speed, but a lot of strength. And so in my mind, I need to carry over that, have a lot of base, have a lot of strength, really build your engine. So I really believe in putting in a lot of meters. So I have a strong base and then I'll do sprint work as well. But I really like the, the amount of base putting that in because I also get those endorphins and I feel better. But also I just, I just enjoy it. I just really enjoy it. So you're looking at, so you're looking at Masters Nationals this year. Absolutely. Absolutely. And are you also looking a little bit farther down the road for Head of the Charles? See, I'm looking a little bit earlier than Head of the Charles for World Masters Championships in um, Austria and Lens. Okay. So I'm still on the fence just yet about that. But Head of the Charles has been um, proposed to me. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not opposed to doing it. It's during my birthday month in October. So it's always going to be a little chilly. And I'm not a big fan of cold weather, even though I lived <laughs> in Boston. But, yeah. you know, well, I came from Puerto Rico. That's where I moved from. Yeah. That's where I moved from, from Texas to Texas. It's from Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, and that's where I actually learned to row. So that's where my rowing, whole rowing career started. So we know that, so you started a run when you were itty bitty and you ran yes. all through high school and college. We know mm -hmm. that you even ran, continued to run as a master's runner. So um, you told us that you ran middle distance events like the 800 and 1500 meter throughout yes. high school and college and yes. continued to run as a, as a master's uh, runner. And it, that took you all the way to the master's indoor track championships and the world master's games. Yeah. What it, what is it about those middle distance events that that you're hooked on? And maybe, you know, why the 100 meter or 10K aren't the events that you go for? Well, it's funny you say that. I tried them all. Actually, I did win the 5K and the 10K at Masters Nationals before, but it's too long. I was like, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> it just wasn't the same. The reason why I really got hooked on the 800, especially the 800, I liked the 400, but I wasn't fast enough. I was good enough to be a finalist, but never a medalist. And they always say 800, good 800 meter runners are reject quarter milers. <laughs> and so you have good speed, but it's just not quite there. And when I tried my hand in the 800 the first time, I won my race. And it was one of those things like, this is the perfect distance for me. Yeah. And so I, I fell in love with it. I did, and they claimed that the 800 or the 400 hurdles is the hardest event on the track, but it just feels like home for me. Mm -hmm. It's just so natural. Um, and I had a wonderful college coach who even continued to coach me even into my master's career. And I went four and a half years without losing one 800 meter race wow. in master's with nationally or globally. It was, it was wonderful. Wow, wow, <laughs> but, wow. Yeah. So one day you're out running you're out yes. on a training run, you're in San Juan, and you decide to stop at a boathouse. There's a guy, <laughs> yes. you want to ask him some questions. How did that chance encounter lead you to learn to row? Okay, so I always had an interest in rowing. When I would run in D.C. on the uh, George Washington Parkway, right over by the airport, right by the Potomac, you would see Georgetown out rowing eights. And I used to always say, I can do that. 
I want to do that. But I never had the opportunity. There was never was it was never presented to me. So I didn't know. So when I was in Puerto Rico and I was running on it, just doing a training run, and I look over and I see these guys out rowing on the water. I said, really? Yeah, so I'm thinking to myself, I never see this here. And so I went up to the boathouse and I said to him, I said, I want to learn how to do that. How long would it take me to learn how to do that? He said about an hour, which, you know, it's not a truth. But I said, okay, you know, naive me thinking, yeah. So I get in. Now, this boathouse doesn't have training boats. They don't have the wider bottom boats that kind of roll with you. You have regular racing shells. <laughs> so yeah. it's get in and you do your best. And so I get in the boat, flip right out of it. I said, no, I don't like this. I don't know if I want to do this after all. He said, no, just give it a shot. So I get in and I start moving a little bit and making a few paddles. And you have extra incentive to stay upright because in the Laguna where we learned or where I learned in Condado, you have uh, electric eel, manatee, uh, stingrays, you know, a few small sharks and stings in the water. So <laughs> you flip there might be a real consequence. After all. <laughs> you have some extra incentive to really understand that your your blades help keep you upright. Yeah. So I wouldn't go too far out, but I started to learn. And within about an hour and a half, I was paddling. It was awful looking, but I looked, I was doing it. Yeah. And I stayed with it. And I actually started to really learn how to row. And so I had my first race. It was in Ponce, which is about, and it's in the middle of the island. And I had a double skulls partner, Angelica. She's actually black Puerto Rican. And we rode and won. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, so this might be fun after all. So kind of stayed with it. And in Puerto Rico, you don't have a lot of races. And you only get to get out on the water maybe two, three times a week. It just don't do a lot with it. You have a federation, but it's very limited. Mm -hmm. So I knew the only way I was going to get better is if I moved. And so I was planning. I remember coming home from practice one day and saying, I'll never get better in rowing if I stay here. And I really love this. I want to mm -hmm. see how far I can go with this. And so I decided I was going to move back to the U.S. I said either Texas or Florida. It had to be somewhere where it was warm. Mm -hmm. And I eliminated Florida because I said, well, they have alligators. I don't think I want to deal with that too much. <laughs> so I chose Texas. And I said, if I go to Texas, it needs to be in the capital. And I was finding rowing centers and I put in a rowing center and Austin Rowing Club came up first. But I contacted them and no one called me back. Mm -hmm. But the second I contacted Texas Rowing Center, I got an immediate response. And I said, I'm going to move there. So I was planning to move. And then Hurricane Irma hit in 2017. And then three weeks later, Hurricane Maria came. So, you know, lost power, everything was destroyed. And so I kind of fast forwarded my plans and I was able to escape off the island in late September. And I arrived in Texas in December because I had to go to Cleveland for a little while. And I met Davis Caldwell as the first person I ever met at the boathouse. He welcomed me with open arms and the rest is history. He, he started working with me and I met Matt Nifton and he and I became very good friends. We're very good friends to this day. I was just at NCAA's cheering his daughter on who was stroke of the, the uh, varsity eight that ended up winning the NCAA championships. It was amazing. Wow. Nice. But, yeah. 
So when did you learn to row? What year was that? This was in, in 2017. Oh, it was late. Okay. Yeah, it was probably mid-2017. And um, I started, I left in December. I, and I'm sorry, I left in September, arrived at Texas Rowing Center in December of 2017. And I felt tricked because, you know, I thought Texas was always hot. And that was the year that it actually snowed. <laughs> so <laughs> I had no winter clothes whatsoever because I'd moved from Puerto Rico. So I had to buy new things. I was like, this is, I don't like this. But I started training and had my first race in um, March of 2018 at the, uh, what do they call it? Oh, I should know the name of this. It's um, Austin Rowing Club has it every year. And it's right down on 35, uh, heart of Texas. Mm -hmm. And I raced in the doubles skulls with uh, Donnie Jensen, who's my double skulls partner. And we had only practiced two or three times. We were the exact same height and weight. We were like 16 years age of difference. So I'm the old man and we won. It was amazing. And so we eked out a win by about a, about a boatman. And um, I started rowing that year and started to continue to get better. And that was really the really the real start of my rowing career was in 2018. And okay. I have to say it was with Texas Rowing Center. So do you remember, what can you tell us about like that, oh, that, the first couple of times you're out in a boat and you just know, okay, I'm going to keep working at this. I'm going to stay upright. I don't want to fall in. <laughs> you get beyond those worries and concerns. And what mm -hmm. was it about rowing that you felt like, you know what, I, I want to do this. I want to do this even yeah. to the point that I want to leave here and find yes. a new place to go row where I can be, you know, serious about it. The first time I had the perfect stroke, that feeling like I was flying. It was nothing like it. Yeah. The first time where I felt it and I was connected and really felt that push and it just released and just let it just let the boat run for just a moment. Yeah. It felt so free. I was in love. I said, I want to do this for a long time. It was just, yeah. it was so addictive, that feeling, because you know, you have your technical things that you have to work on. And I kept working at it because I would see people rowing. I'm like, God, they look so fast. I want to do that. And the first time that I actually felt that. I knew I wanted to do it again and mm. I wanted to get better at it. That was the definitive moment. I remember saying to myself, wow. And I stopped for a moment and just kind of sat there and I said, I'm gonna do that again. And so I did it a few <laughs> more times and started taking more strokes and then took take two or three and just let it run. And just that, that feeling of freedom. Oh, it's just the best. Yeah, yeah. That, was, we, that was the moment right there. We talked to a lot of rowers who when, whether they've been rowing for a week or years and years and years, and they all have a very similar, uh, they, they've used the words like addiction and flying and mm -hmm. meditation and Absolutely. technique and precision. And I'm wondering how your love of running has now sort of translated, like where, what are the threads there that feed you? Like, it seems like sport feeds you, fitness Absolutely. feeds you. And that you're looking for that visceral experience, that, that yeah. body experience. How would you compare the two, like the track and the well, rowing? It, they both take a lot of work. And it's a sport that will tell on you. If you haven't put in the work, it shows. It's like a bank account. You can't pull out what you don't put in. So you have to put that work in. They both require being very, you have to be very um, precise, even when it comes down to foot placement. Same thing with blade placement. Um, just being very focused. And I like that where you can just take 
everything else and cast it out and just focus on what you're doing at that moment. And it gives me a mental break. And having to put in that work both on the track or in the water. And I think it requires more work in rowing because you have to be fit. You also have to uh, get the technical piece right. But then you also have the uh, extra um, things of wind. And let's say if the water is choppy, it's just so many things you have to adjust and it's a sport that you can constantly continue to improve. Whereas you start working on one skill, you're like, oh, I finally got that. You find yourself having to work on another one. It's always a thing where you can continue to evolve. And that's what really got me addicted to it because running, I felt like I did all, all that I could do in the sport considering my age. But I said, you know, I could really learn a lot in rowing and this is something that I could do long-term because running was starting to really affect my knees mm -hmm. over time. And, you know, rowing is less abusive on your joints. And mm -hmm. so, and that just that the amount of, of freedom that you feel on the water, it's just, I, I think I fell in love more with rowing than I did with running, even though mm -hmm. I was with it for so many decades of my life. Yeah. Well, it sounds like rowing found you at, at a really good time. <laughs> mm -hmm. It did. It did. I remember watching it on television in the Olympic games when I was younger. And I always wondered, how do they get to do that? You would hear these people and they would say their names and from different cities around the country. And I wanted to know how somebody from New Jersey could be rowing with someone from Washington State and from California and Texas and all in the same boat. I didn't understand the process. And I, at the time it was not something that I was exposed to. And when I finally had the opportunity, I, I, I dove head first in and have never looked back. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, you're you're doing two days. Are you squeezing in any running? Yeah, <laughs> I am. So when I finish it, there's a running trail. If you're in uh, Texas Rowing Center in Austin, mm -hmm. there's a running trail around Lady Bird Lake. But I'm also I split my time between Austin and Dallas. So at Bachman Lake, the Dallas Rowing Club, there's also a running trail around that lake. Mm -hmm. So after my my rows, I'll go and run one loop. I always do that just the for the fitness. Yeah, and I also feel like it helps me with fitness because my coach used to always say, you can never put in enough base. So the more running you do, the, the better you will be. So even though I've done a hard workout and I'm tired, if I go ahead and still run this small, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, that will add to my fitness. And I do find that when a, a thousand meter race, and if I have multiple races in a day, I don't feel very winded after a thousand meter race. And I'm able to feel like I can recover quickly for my next event later that day. Mm -hmm. So I just feel I I'd rather be overprepared than, than not prepared. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, an exclusive interview with rower and filmmaker Eamon Glavin. He started experimenting with cameras in boats and drones overhead to capture video of rowing unlike anything else we've ever seen. In February 2021, Eamon began following lightweight sculling Olympic hopefuls through training and qualification trials to make a rowing documentary about their journey to the Tokyo Games. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, would you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back with Sculler Napoleon Griffin. That's one, two.
so there's been some there's been some bumps along the way and and i think what we when we read about your story the bumps would include hurricanes which we yes. neither rachel nor i have endured and i'm wondering the rowing scene in puerto rico uh what's that like and and how it was affected by the hurricanes because oh, yeah. this is a platform you know this is a, a, a global platform where we talk about uh, a lot of stuff on here and i know that puerto rico is still struggling to get back um, to some sense of normal, especially after that last one. But can you tell us about the rowing community in Puerto Rico and like how the hurricanes yeah. have affected that? Yeah, actually I went back to Puerto Rico uh, last year for my birthday. So it'd been some time away, been about almost three years away. But when the hurricane struck the boathouse, the good thing about the infrastructure in Puerto Rico, you build the homes to be able to deal with tropical storms and things of that nature. But this hurricane was a category five. The first one was a pass, but Maria was a direct hit. And mm. it did destroy a lot. And it really uh, turned over a lot of the sediment and other things in the water, which made it um, unsafe to row in. So no one was allowed out in the Laguna for quite some time. So there was no rowing whatsoever for months. And some of the boats were destroyed. There was some damage to the boathouse itself. And you don't have a lot of equipment to start with. It's a pretty small boathouse. And so it really did limit a lot of things. And it was a lot of destruction because, you know, the island was, was, was without power for 89 days. Wow. I left mid, midway and it was just um, a lot of crime and you just could not go anywhere. You didn't have a lot of resources. So rowing was not a top priority at that time. Now, prior to the hurricane, the Rowing Federation was very warm. You have uh, uh, Roberto. He is fantastic. He actually used to row in college for Marquette. So he was a sweep rower. And he did row in the Pan Am Games, representing Puerto Rico. Wonder, wonderful guy. And it's a very small amount of athletes. So you typically know each other. You had some juniors. You had some who were masters. And you had some who were trying to see if they could become good enough to be able to make the national team. Because the majority of those who are the national team for Puerto Rico do not live in Puerto Rico. Um, the young lady, there's a young lady who did qualify for Tokyo this year, mm -hmm. who represents Puerto Rico. She's the first ever. So everyone is wow. extremely proud of her. Yeah. Wow. And she, I think she goes to MIT. I think she was um, in college in, in Massachusetts and will be a medical student after the, uh, the games are over. Just but like Chevy. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's 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 very intelligent and very driven, and she has really made the island very proud. So I'm extremely proud of her. So, uh, but the, you have a very small amount of athletes. So for her to be one of those few to blossom and be able to go to, step onto the world stage is a fantastic accomplishment. Um, we had that happen with uh, our conversation with NASA Rowing Club. One of the people on the NASA call was born and raised in, in the Bahamas. Um, and she was the first Bahamian to represent in, in uh, the Olympics for NASA, for Bahamas. So it was, yeah. That's right. Yeah, very small yeah, population also. Chris Pinnock is the president there, I believe, for the Bahamas. Um, I know a lot about the Bahamas through track and field because you have a fantastic amount of athletes that come out of the Bahamas in track and field. You know, it's such a, a population that's not even 100,000 people. Yeah, but they they can crank out track athletes and they're starting to do the same with rowing because they have a, a gentleman as well who did represent Bahamas 
and the single skulls at the world championships in 2017 in Sarasota, Florida. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's great to see. I mean, these are Island communities and, and I know that coastal rowing is also taking off. Is that taking off in Puerto Rico as well? Uh, somewhat. It's beginning to, to start to pick up and especially considering you're right there in the Caribbean. I mean, it's a perfect place to, to learn. I guess the only thing about living on an island and trying to row because you're in salt water and you don't really have contained bodies of water as you would say like a lake or things like that. Now Ponce, they did create this, but where we row in Condado, it's really connected to the ocean. There's just a small bridge mm-hmm. and then you go further down and there's the ocean right there. And so you have days where the water is flat, but for the most part, you know, people talk about, oh, I didn't mean for the boat to wake you. We, we learn how to row in that because we always used to just doing that anyway. So yeah. that's something yeah. that you have to learn to contest with. And, and after a while, you just become comfortable with it. But I think as federations begin to grow and the sport begins to gain more popularity, uh, resources will become uh, more abundant as well. So it's something that the only thing that is an advantage in the Caribbean is that pretty much everyone who lives on an island knows how to swim. And mm-hmm. so that's not that fear of water, mm-hmm. whereas sometimes in the United States, people are interested in rowing, but they don't really know how to swim, especially in the Black community. Mm-hmm. That is a, definitely a barrier. And so a lot of times that's the thing where some people will say, well, I, I want to row, but I'm scared of that deep water. So that's not necessarily something that you contend with in Puerto Rico. Everybody in the Caribbean can swim. That's just mm-hmm. how it works. When you join the Steady State Patreon community as a subscriber, you're supporting a new narrative in rowing and a couple of your fellow rower entrepreneurs make it happen. Patrons get bonus content, swag, and early access. So join today at SteadyStateNetwork.com, on Instagram and Facebook at SteadyStateNetwork, and on Twitter at SteadyStateRow. In two, we're back with sculler Napoleon Griffin, that's one, two. So um, the other bump is a cancer diagnosis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what year was that and how did that play out and how are you today? I'm wonderful now in 2007. I'll never forget it. I was actually at home and I just finished training earlier and I had the biggest craving for Chinese food. I don't know why. But I just wanted to have some Chinese food that night. And so I'm sitting there eating my Chinese food, watching television. There was something funny. And I laughed and I was eating and spilled some on my shirt. And I remember kind of sweeping it off. And I felt a lump behind my left pectoral, in my left pectoral muscle, right behind my nipple. And I was like, what is this? You know, I just kind of brushed it off thinking, oh, you know, I'm just working out hard. Or, you know, you don't think much about it. I let an entire year go by. And um, I went down to Panama. I was down there for a training camp, and running. And uh, we were running up hills, doing hill drills. And it's so warm, you just wear your shorts, your shoes, and no shirt. You mm-hmm. think so, I'm running. Go to the top of the hill, you do your push-ups, and you jog back down. And one of the guys says to me in Spanish, and I was you know, like, yeah. As I look, I had a blood discharge come out of my left nipple. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? It's just, it kind of really made me nervous. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And so the trainer comes and she stops it. I'm thinking I might have scraped it or done something not knowing, like get a paper cut or something. I wasn't thinking that it was that big of a deal. So 
being hard-headed. Two more weeks pass, and then we're doing plyometrics and doing drills over the hurdles. And I was bouncing over hurdles, and for some reason, I came down wrong, and I hurt my right foot. I thought I broke my foot, and I had to go to the hospital and have an MRI. Mm-hmm. And when I went, I happened to mention to the physician that I was having a little bit of pain, and I had a blood discharge. So he said, well, uh, we can just do a full MRI, just do a scan and see what's going on. And when they came back, I was I saw this look of concern. And I'm thinking, is my foot going to be okay? Well, I need to run. He said, I'm not worried about your foot. I'm worried about these three masses that we have seen in your chest and your pectoral muscle is concerning. And I said, three? I said, I only feel one. Mm-hmm. He said, well, it's two more that are deeply embedded in which you can't feel. Mm-hmm. So they needed to do a biopsy. And as a man, you don't have a lot of breast tissue. So mm-hmm. it's a little different. So they have to go in. They did not give me any anesthesia. Oh, it hurt so bad. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I, I can sing, but I didn't know I could hit notes that high. So <laughs> I, was, I was in pain. And make a long story short, they came back with the diagnosis that I was in stage 2B of male breast cancer. Hmm. Wow. And yeah. And, you know, I was like, a man could get breast cancer? You know, at yeah. that time, you weren't thinking, I wasn't thinking that a man could have breast cancer. It was just, it was so strange to me. And so I immediately left Panama and returned to the D.C. area. And I started treatment at Georgetown. And it really wasn't working out very well for me there. So I ended up leaving and going to Indianapolis, Indiana, to Central Indiana Cancer Treatment Facility. Mm-hmm. And for the next 11 months, I remained there. I was doing outpatient. I had a cousin who was living there. And so in my mind, I wasn't sick. I was just on a temporary hiatus from health. That's what I used to always say. And I said, I don't want to go into inpatient hospital. I don't care these sick people. That's what I always said. Because in my mind, I was going to live. Well, I started to, um, it was getting worse. I was declining quickly. And they had to really start with more aggressive chemotherapy. I had done a lumpectomy, but I was still having a lot of issues um, to the point where I went from 180 pounds to 109 at my lightest. Wow. And yeah, it was, it was really rough. And um, I remember I got to the point where I was in stage 3B. And they explained to me that with breast cancer, uh, typically you find that breast cancer is more deadly in uh, women of color because they typically have higher levels of testosterone. And for a man of color, we have even higher levels of testosterone and cancer really thrives off of that. And so as a result, it was just so aggressive. And so they had to really treat it aggressively for me. And in the end, I beat it. And I ended up going into remission. In February, actually, I was declared cancer-free on February 14th. It was Valentine's Day of 2011. And so every year I send myself flowers. It has nothing to do with, oh. with, with Valentine's Day. <laughs> I love <laughs> so, that. Yeah, since 2011. That's why I have this long beard. When uh-huh. I had all my, can- my all my hair fell out. Chemo took all my hair away. And uh, mustache fell out, eyelashes were coming out, had a little bit of eyebrows. But when I started to become healthy again, my mustache started growing back and so did my goatee. And at first I cut it. And I said, you know, I'm not gonna cut it again. So I didn't, I said, when something is healthy, it grows. Yeah. I'm growing hair, that means I'm healthy. And mm-hmm. so as a result, I've not cut it 
I've not cut my goatee since 2011. It is probably about 14 and a half inches long. So it dropped, but I keep it tied up. But uh, this for me is like, yeah, this is like my my symbol of new life, health and strength. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a nice reminder, a reminder for Absolutely. you. Absolutely, yeah. it, it, it is. Wow, well, congratulations. I mean, that's an accomplishment. And then and Thank then just you. the uh, the learning about uh, male breast cancer and how breast cancer affects uh, POC, uh, and black women and men uh, differently Absolutely. potentially and yeah. yeah great education piece there for sure well, i mean i'm sorry every year through that my instagram i post in october because that's breast cancer awareness month i always post about male breast cancer and it's so funny i'm talking to a gentleman and we start talking about male breast cancer they all do the same thing they start touching their chest <laughs> yeah and see if something's there and it's something you don't think about. There may have been some prominent figures uh, who are men who have had male breast cancer. Um, one of the members of the band, Kiss, actually had it. And everyone knows him as Shaft, but Richard Roundtree actually had it as well. Um, yeah, it was something that uh, I never paid attention to. And when I was there in the oncology unit, there were other gentlemen there mm-hmm. who had it. But it's yeah. not something that you talk about because it's something that's typically seen as a, a woman's disease or an affliction that women only have, not men. And, you know, it, no. And I proudly wear my pink shirt because your pink shirt says that you are a survivor. Yeah. So I remember they had a church service and they were acknowledging all those who survived breast cancer. And all of these women stood up and I stood up too. I said, that's right. Men can have it too. <laughs> and I you. survived yeah. it. That's right. You're right. We really don't talk about it as a society. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about um, all, there are a variety of um, we can row organizations across the country and all, everyone I know who's participated, they've all been women. And um, I, I, I'm not close enough to that organization to know whether or not they do any sort of outreach to to male breast cancer survivors, but I certainly think that there's an opportunity there. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a, in in Seattle, I have a good friend, Cody Jenkins, wonderful guy. He lives in Seattle and rose there. I met him at nationals. And that's what I love about rowing because you can bond and make so many friendships with people globally as well as nationally. It is a wonderful thing. And they have a breast cancer row every year in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, row for the cure. Yes. And he wants, he was like, Hey, uh, when you get a chance, let's, let's plan it. Cause you have COVID and everything else happened, but we want to row in that together. Cause he's like, look, you, you, you went through it. It would be mm-hmm. an honor to row with you in this. I, I'm all for it. So yeah, um, I would love to do that, but they do have that one. That's the one that I do know of, but no, I've never really seen where they've reached out to men because it's something that's uh, not really discussed that often. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, gotta be aware. yeah, the Row for the Cure event has uh, usually has uh, survivor boats, you know, and and what's fun <laughs> about that event is it's not really a race. It's a time, right. you know, it's a time trial, essentially a yeah. head race, but uh, it's always the second or third weekend in September. And it's just so fun. And everybody raises money for the local Susan G. Komen um, yes. organization and um, and people dress up, but there's lots of feather boas and costumes and people put stuff on their riggers and, and there's, it's, it's a blast. Yeah. It's just such a joyful event uh, on Lake yes. Union there in the middle of, 
uh, the heart of Seattle rowing, which is yeah. great. I've done it many times. It's really fun. Really, really yes, fun. it is. I remember in 2018 at the World Masters Championships, I competed in a single. And there was a young lady who was a part of Texas Rowing Center. She's actually moved to New Jersey since, but she has a brand called Pulling for Pink. And it has a hat and it has the breast cancer pink ribbon. And she had the oars with the breast cancer implement. Okay. And so she said, you went through this. So I want you to roll with these in a single. And I, I did. I, yeah. I had the pulling for pink uh, breast cancer oars. I had the visor on, wow. everything. And when I crossed the line, Susie G. Coleman and them came up to me after the race and I was taking pictures with everyone and they were like a breast cancer survivor. It was wonderful. It was wow. wonderful. So I have a special bond with anyone who has been through breast cancer because it, it takes a toll on you mentally as well as physically. You're watching your body turn on itself and you're watching yourself deteriorate and you're trying to fight your own body to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a different mentality. You definitely look at things different certain things that used to stress you out do not bother you anymore because when you're being told that you may not live, because I've gotten to the point where they didn't think I was going to live for another year or so. Wow. I had gotten so frail and so sick and I was determined. I remember going home and looking myself in the, looking at myself in the mirror and I said, I am not ready to go yet. I am not. And I am going to live. And that's when I immediately called my oncologist like, look, this is supposed to be a partnership. We're going to have to do this together. I don't care what it takes. I'm strong. Let's do this. And thankfully, he 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 was willing and he worked with me. And it was hard. It was very hard. But um, I beat it. And it gives you a different perspective on life. And it makes you tougher. It does. And so I have the utmost respect for any person who's had any cancer, not just breast cancer, but to be able to beat it. And, and be a survivor and live to tell about it. And your story can inspire and help someone else. Because I remember meeting someone who had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And she just like, what am I going to do? And I said, this is what you're going to do. And I told her what I went through. I said, this is what you need to do. And this is what you will do. And you will survive it. But you have to make the determination. You know, when they talk about sport being just as mental as it is physical, it's the same thing when it comes to surviving um, a lot of things in life, but especially when you're being faced with an extreme health challenge like that, your mentality has to be, I am going to live, you know, I am going to fight. And so um, once you make that determination, you, you do all you can to be here to live another day. And so um, I just, I just, every day is this a gift, you know, people always talk about live your life as though this is your last day or live your life to the fullest. A lot of people just say that as empty rhetoric. But when you're really told you may not be here, you really take that into account and you look at it differently. So that's why I've lived so many different places because I want to live and experience life. I want to be able to say I've done this, been there, you know, and rowing was one of those things that I always wanted to do. And so I had already gone through cancer and already beat it. It's like, here's another thing I can do and check off my bucket list. And yeah. just so happened, I fell in love with it. And yeah. I'm staying with it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a great story. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. We, uh, we know there's so much depth that goes into the motivations behind pe why people do what they do and why people row. And, and uh, it's just nice to hear such a, a positive outcome. Of course, we're happy that you're well and happy that you're safe and well. Um, but I know that this particular podcast episode will have some great messages. I think that, oh, okay. that a lot of people 
will relate to, and maybe some people will be just newly diagnosed and really need to hear it and didn't know they needed to hear it. So you never know who's listening. So thank you for sharing all of that. Good news. Steady State Network co-founders Rachel and Tara are meeting face-to-face for the first time at U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, August 12th through 15th. And we want to meet you there, too. Look for the Steady State Network broadcast booth in Vendors Row. We'll be selling swag, talking with rowers, coaches, and coxswains live on Facebook and Instagram, hosting coffee chat every morning, and hanging out for happy hours. So if you'll be at Masters Nationals 2021, stop by and say hello. And during our conversation with Napoleon, he let us know about a special plan he's got for Masters Nationals too. Have a listen. We are actually putting together, it was an idea that I had. I just wanted to put it out there to see what would happen. And I have a few few friends who live in DC and they're all black rowers, which is not a lot of scholars. It's about a handful of us. And I contacted him and I said, hey, I want to put together an all black quad. Yeah. He said, for real? I said, yeah, "Yeah, please. Yeah. Long story short. We just solidified. I had our last meeting yesterday. I'm going to be coming to D.C. We're going to be having a training camp. and We'll be racing at Nationals in August. So we're going to wrap up. Uh, We're going to do what we call rapid fire. I've been waiting for those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you you know about rapid fire. I do. Okay. All right. The first question, which I think we know the answer to, but uh, single or double? Actually, double. Faster. I like, I like going fast. (laughs) Bow seat or stroke seat? Bow. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Sprint race or head race? Sprint. Uni suit or tank and trow? Uni all day. Okay. Uh, Favorite place to row? Ooh. Hmm. That's a hard one. I've rode in a lot of places. I would have to say in France, that was the venue was so beautiful. I would have to say France. I actually was able to row um, in the venue where they'll have the 2024 Olympics for rowing. And that 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 area and that venue is is magnificent. So I would have to say France. Okay. What what did you see? What did it look like there? Oh wow. Well, they have the towpath, which you have on the side. But they're going to have the triathlon next to the rowing venue. So where the rowing venue is, of course, you have your 2K straight down. But there's a large cement barrier that goes all the way down. So it keeps the wash away. And then they have this tower that's on the other side where the triathlon will be. It'll be a much more intimate setting. So the triathletes won't be in this no man's land. They'll continue to be cheered on. The swimming venue is right there. The finish line for the rolling event is right down at the end where the triathlon also finishes. So you have this huge grandstand that goes all the way down, you know, unlike it eat Dornington, it's kind of set up like that where you have people where they have two grandstands. This had grandstands that went the entire way down. Nice. Wow. It was just beautiful. That, wow. I have to say that was probably the most beautiful venue I've ever rode in. Wow. Cool. Okay, uh, best piece of rowing advice you ever received? Mm, it was two of them, so I have to pick this one then. Being patient in your stroke, not trying to muscle it through. Because when you, or being soft at the catch. Yeah, 
I would have to say softer to catch. I think that would be better because okay. I was terrible for slamming it in. <laughs> I bet you're pretty excited to get that catch. <laughs> I, I am because sometimes I'm so excited to get it and then it's like, okay, I just really dug deep. So he's yeah. like, just be a little more patient, softer to catch and then drive it. So yeah. Yeah. We always say, you know, don't kill the baby bird under your foot. Absolutely. Don't yeah. Crush, don't crush the baby That's bird. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, coffee before or after a row? And neither. I don't drink coffee. We're both tea drinkers. Yeah. <laughs> We're tea drinkers also. Okay. But some people like need the like coffee tap directly into the veins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Is that right? <laughs> All right. Well, Napoleon, thanks so much for taking um, some time to talk to us today. It's been really great getting to know you. And thank you so, so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Uh, it's really important to hear what you've had to tell us about overcoming cancer and, you know, just overcoming adversity and learning to love rowing and where rowing can take you. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Is it okay if I give a special shout out to a few people? Oh, yeah. the rowing Okay. So at Texas Rowing Center, I definitely want to say to Davis Caldwell, Matt Nifton, Tracy Falkenthal, Coach Mark Boucher, and Donnie Jensen, who is my double skulls partner. Um, they, those people have been extremely influential in the development and just building my confidence in rowing. My first competition in 2018, Matt took the time to facilitate everything. I went to Philadelphia by myself to race on a Schuylkill in a single. And I represented TRC alone. And he had everything set up. And I was able to get there. I won my semi, but I finished third in the final. But he really made sure that I felt loved and appreciated and did so much for me. So I have to say the Texas Rowing Center has been wonderful and has been the best places to row and to learn. And in a Dallas Rowing Club, Maria Esway, who has just been fantastic from day one. And so I just can't thank her enough for making me feel welcome at that club as well, because I've only been in Dallas for about three months now. But I just want to say a special thank you to all of those people. Thank you so much for talking thank with you. us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. You all yeah. take care. All right. You all too, right. Napoleon. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To see photos of Napoleon along with links to the people, clubs, and regattas mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Study State Network is interested in your story. If you've got something to share, email us at submissions at steadystatenetwork.com. Hey there, a quick favor. We're conducting an audience survey. We'd be really grateful if you could just take a couple of minutes and answer the questions. Whether you've listened to just one episode or all of them, your opinion matters. To take the survey today, visit steadystatenetwork.com slash listener survey. Thanks. Did you know that Steady State is more than a podcast? We've got virtual events happening every week that bring together the rowing community from across the country and around the world. Every Friday, Rachel and I get together with our global teammates to talk rowing, life, and everything in between. You're invited to join us for our 30-minute coffee chat, Fridays, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Facebook Live. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Are you looking for weekend workout buddies? 
Join us for Steady State Sundays every Sunday at 6.45 a.m. Pacific, 9.45 Eastern. During these free 60-minute Steady State ERG workouts, we provide cues and insights to keep you motivated. Arrive warmed up, work at your own pace, and stick around after the talk. We're also a proud media sponsor of Seize the Oar Foundation. Seize the Oar champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. Learn more at SeizeTheOar.com. To find out more about any of our events and claim your spot in our lineup, visit SteadyStateNetwork.com slash events. In two, let it run. That's one, two, let it run. And one day I was out rowing and Mia, Mia's actually from Boston as well. And I almost flipped over when she saw me. She said, I can't believe that somebody looks like me out here. 